How many decisions have you made this morning? I've made 8,000, actually. According to some researchers, we make 2,000 decisions an hour. I got up at 5.15. It's about well, 5.20 or 9.20. So I've been up for four hours, four times two, 8,000, 8,000. How many of you got up an hour ago? You've only made two. They actually say that, on average, we make 35,000 decisions a day, right? One every two seconds. I think that, for me, 8,000 decisions this morning is a little steep because I'm a creature of habit. I pride myself on being super efficient with my time, getting as much done as I can in as little as time as possible, and so I set these little routines in my head, right? So when I get up in the morning, my very first decision is, do I hit snooze or do I get up? Some of us are better at that decision than others. And then the rest of it is kind of automated. I get up, I brush my teeth, I wash my face, I'll do my hair, shower, shower, then my, do my hair. That'd be a bad decision right away in the morning. So I'm efficient. I try to do as many things as I can just kind of unconsciously which is interesting because you actually have to be conscious even to make an unconscious decision. We, we all make tons of decisions, and some of the decisions that we make are more important than others. Some require a little bit more time and contemplation. This weekend, I made a decision really solely with all of you in mind. It helped me to decide what I was gonna participate in what risks I was going to take this weekend. Because you see, John and Eric are out of town. Lee's on vacation. And if something happened to me, <laughs> I'm really not sure who would be up here. I actually thought, if something happened, who would I call? Like, honestly, who would I call? Like that, you know, that helpline? I'm not quite sure. But a lot of decisions, honestly, I mean, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek and funny, but I actually seriously did contemplate it. But some decisions really are serious, and they take more time, and they take more thought. Some of these decisions might be like, let me sleep on it. Give me a week, and I'll get back to you. Or maybe we need a month. Sometimes our decisions may carry a heavy weight on the other end of them, and we're worried about making the right decision. Well, when I was younger, and even now, I've always been very visual. I'm a visual learner. I'm a visual processor. Some of you might argue and say I'm a verbal processor, but I'm probably that too. So I'll visually process something, and then I might want to meet with you and then verbally process it and go through all of my options. So I'm serious about some, making some of these decisions. And so when I'm serious about making a decision, I use a graphic organizer, the T-chart. Remember the T-chart? I still use it. We learned about it in eighth grade English when we were learning to write a compare and contrast essay, right? And later, I used it when I was going to have to write an opinion paper, which I actually got pretty good at. So the T-chart is something that is pretty easy to use. We've used it with our kids often when they have to make a decision or when we, when Steve and I think that, 
ooh, this could be impulsive, this might not turn out the way that they want it to, and not that we want to protect them, but we'll ask the kids, okay, write the pros on one side, the cons of this purchase on the other side, write down um, the probability of certain things happening. Remember a couple weeks ago, John talked about probability and odds? What are the probability that certain things would happen? And so we'd have our kids do that, and then we would have them take a two-week like waiting grace period. If it was still something that you really wanted to do after two weeks, and you've weighed your options on either side with the T-chart, then you move forward. But more often than not, most of our kids' decisions were like, they forgot that they were even wanting to do something or even just trying to decide on what to do. So our passage today reads a little bit like a pro and con essay. The author wants the readers and us to recognize the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So today, we are in Hebrews. We're in chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. Page 1009, if you're in a blue Bible. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble in fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, a heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Sometimes we need reassurance after decisions. Sometimes we need to know that we're on the right path. Sometimes we need to know that we actually made a good decision, even though we may need to make a new decision given new information. Sometimes following through with the decision that we made can be difficult and even painful, and we need encouragement to persevere and move on. I think about eight years ago, I remember sitting in John's office, and I said to him, no, really, I think you hired the wrong person. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really quite certain that we all made the wrong decision. And he was that person that helped me, no, Amy, I'm fairly certain that the right decision was made. If you walk away, if you go somewhere else, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going back to what was comfortable. Public education, being a principal where I could tell everybody what to do. <laughs> John would tell you I already do that anyway still. <laughs> Needless to say, I stayed, but I just needed that reassurance and so a little compare and contrast in this passage is what the author is using. The words, but you have come to, in verse 22, following in verse 18, 
for you have not come, tells us right away that the writer is pointing to a contrast between two things that he's going to describe for us. In fact, it's a really rather dramatic contrast. Like, I feel like you couldn't be more opposite if you put two things together. This passage is offering reassurance and encouragement by reminding the early church and us of what the old covenant and what the new covenant has to offer us. And he's also telling us that part of that new covenant is still to come. This is what we have to look forward to. These verses compare and they contrast the law with Jesus, the old covenant with the new covenant. Through the entire book of Hebrews, the author has been presenting these examples of why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Jesus is better than the law. The entire book of Hebrews, it's like a broken record. Every single time that I have preached, I have preached through the book of Judges or from the book, not Judges, I taught that Wednesday night for a little while, Hebrews. And it's funny because somebody, my mom and dad or the kids or somebody would say, so what are you preaching on Sunday? And I'm like, Jesus, it's always about Jesus. Because Hebrews points us to Jesus over and over and over again. And now here, the author is telling us, this versus this, it's Jesus. You've made the right choice. Or make the choice. It's Jesus. There was a rub in the first century for Jews. This was not a decision that was taken lightly. It was difficult because they literally were making a radical decision. What was simple and, not simple, what was comfortable and what was the norm was this high priest and this sacrificial activity. That was normal. It was comfortable, maybe not easy, but it was comfortable because it was the norm. It's hard to break out of what everybody else is doing and make a radical decision. There were some people when I left education that were like, what on earth is she thinking? What? And then there were other people who knew me really well and said, of course she's doing that. Of course she's going to go work at a church. And so we need a little bit of reassurance that our decision, the change in our lifestyle, is appropriate. It's needed. It's helpful. So in the first century, the significant transformation of living was what made the Jews uncomfortable. It was a decision that wasn't necessarily popular in the ancient Near East culture. And oftentimes, the pressure to stick to the old ways of life, the old covenant, the sacrificial system, was actually threatened by death. If you were choosing to follow this guy, Jesus, and it was different than what we have been doing for centuries, you could be put to death. It wasn't necessarily a popular decision for people to make. This was a paradigm shift. A paradigm is a pattern. If we have a paradigm shift in our life, there's a pattern of activities, there's a pattern of how we do life that people can recognize or we recognize it. I think about paradigm shifts, some of the most significant paradigm shifts I've seen in people. Whenever I hear the testimony of somebody 
that has graduated from Adult and Teen Challenge. Wow. Wow. They have taken what they, their paradigm, the normal set of patterns that they live by, put them aside, exchanged them for a new pattern, a new paradigm, a new way of living, focused on Jesus, and their whole life has changed. You see this transformation. I see this with people who have completed the ultimate journey. You've heard about the ultimate journey here. We're still doing it. There's been lots and lots of people who have gone through all three phases of it. And I see these transformations in people. People come, they're broken, there's a past. And when we have realized the significance of who Jesus is, the offer made by his blood, and the promise of a future with him, our lives can be transformed. We can put the past in the back. We can put the past behind us. See ourselves as the creatures, the beautiful creation that God intended us to be, and move forward with our life in light of God and the promise that he has for us. We oftentimes will see, and you hear me say, we have adopted this Christ in me, Christ through me, paradigm, the lens in which I see life, the lens in which we navigate life, if Christ is in us, if Christ is in us and he's active, then he flows through us in the decisions that we make, in the interactions that we keep, or the friendships that we keep, the interactions that we make. This is a paradigm shift. So for these Jews in the first century, this was a radical shift. It wasn't necessarily a popular decision for them to make. And sometimes it was hard. The threats were hard. It seemed too easy. There were no sacrifices. And so the author of Hebrews wants to remind them, this is what you gave up. This is what you have now, and this is what is to come. He's comparing and contrasting the two. Drawing near to God was a tough sell. I don't think it's as hard as it is, as, as hard for us as it was for them. Yeah, we may have to make some different choices in our life. We may have to change the company that we keep. We may have to make some different decisions about how we spend our money or where we spend our time or what kind of movies we watch. And sometimes we are probably going to be looked at cross-eyed. People might whisper behind us, what is she doing? What is he doing? Who cares? It's a paradigm shift. It's a change in how we see life. We can see why they would be afraid, right? I mean, look at this first <laughs> three verses, verses 18 through 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be, messages be spoken to them. 
for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble in fear. This description of Mount Sinai, which is, was a physical place, is from the book of Exodus, chapters 19 and 20. When Israel is assembling near the mountain um, to meet God. And then later, this is also where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Under the Old Covenant, God was not accessible. People would be stoned. Beasts would be stoned. The scene at Mount Sinai kind of mimics the temple of God, right? There were these rules, rules about who could get in and where in the temple you could walk through or get to. And so here at Mount Sinai, you cannot approach the mountain. You cannot touch it. You cannot walk through the cloud in the darkness to find and get sight of God. The author is reminding the first century church of the terror, terror and dread that they experienced being in the presence of God. It was a holy fear. It was a terrorizing fear. They were afraid because they were warned against touching the mountain and getting too close to God. They didn't want to do it because they were threatened with certain death. Exodus 19 actually says, neither human being or animals will live if they touch the mountain that both would be stoned for transgressing the boundaries. That takes up trespassing to a whole new level, right? Trespassing, four pages, Minnesota state statute, number 609.605. Four pages, describes mis misdemeanors, gross misdemeanors. It, talk, it gives a definition of trespassing. And I did not realize this, I might have been sleeping in my, like, school law class. That trespassing on school property is actually a gross misdemeanor. I had no idea. Trespassing on a school bus, gross misdemeanor. Trespassing on agricultural, ag agricultural land, a gross misdemeanor. I'm sure that a clever person can probably find some loophole in here and get themselves out of a misdemeanor or a charge um, with a gross misdemeanor but there really seems to be no loophole in this law. The writer of Hebrews highlighted the terror that the people felt by reminding them that even an animal who didn't even comprehend what the consequence would be if they approached or got too close or got on the mountain, they couldn't even comprehend the punishment that they would receive, and yet, that was still the truth. They were still told that even a beast cannot come up. And so the scene at Mount Sinai, when they're, they're begging God to stop talking, they do not want to hear anymore. They cannot bear to hear what he is saying. Really? An animal who can't even comprehend the consequence of them approaching is going to die? Really? They can't even comprehend it. Oops, sorry. Four years ago, I had foot surgery, pretty significant foot surgery, remember? I was on a cart for a really long time. It got me out of doing announcements for a real long time, too, though, because I couldn't wheel it up here. But I remember going in two weeks after 
post-surgery. Now, okay, they um, broke bones, refused bones, they like twisted some things and put plates in, and then they, they um, lengthened and shortened some ligaments. And I remember going in at that two-week appointment, and I'm anxious, like, I have, a queasy, I have a queasy stomach. Like, if I see your blood, I might see stars, and I would have to sit down. So I go in there, and I, I'm anxious. I'm sweating. Like, I'm actually sweating right now telling you this. I asked the nurse, okay, what exactly is going to happen? Because I know they're taking all of those bandages off, right? My foot was huge. It was very well protected. So she says, okay, um, so we'll take the wrap off, and then we'll take the cotton and lift the gauze. And I'm like, wait, wait, how fast are you going to do that? And she's like, it's so slow, Amy. And I said, and then what? She says, we'll take the stitches. No, 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 please stop. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Because her words were creating this terrible image in my mind. She's like, breathe, it's okay. Take some deep breaths. Do you have AirPods? You can listen to music. Do you listen to Christian music? You can listen to Christian music. I'll get you some water. And so calm down. I couldn't bear to hear it. Have you ever done that? Like somebody's going to describe something to you and you're like, no, 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 stop. I can't take it. That's what's happening here. They're saying, no, stop. This is so bad. We cannot hear anymore. Stop talking, God. We can't bear this. The point of the warning was that the believers couldn't draw near through the old covenant. They needed the high priest to act on their behalf. They needed somebody to mediate for them. At the scene of Mount Sinai, they begged him to stop because they couldn't bear the truth of what he was speaking. The scene at Mount Sinai communicated a God that was distant and unapproachable. The relationship to sin and judgment and God's holiness was feared. Even Moses feared God's judgment. In just three sentences, the author of Hebrews, he summed up the implications of our sin and the impact of the Old Testament. And the picture painted a pretty vivid, terrifying picture. Now let's look at what the New Covenant has to say. Here's the contrast side of it. We're in verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the holy Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The contrast between Mount Sinai and Zion is like, wow, completely different. Could you get any further apart? It's paralyzing fear, terrorizing fear, versus extraordinary grace and joy. The words you have come to are significant and reoccurring throughout Hebrews. They mean you are here now. But there's also this already but not yet type of scenario, right? 
They have come to Zion. They're in the presence of God. We are in the presence of God. And yet the fullness of God's promise has not yet come. We see this vertical and temporal type of representation, right? The earthly Jerusalem here for us right now. It points upward to a heavenly Jerusalem, heaven. And at the same time, it points forward to what is to come. The assembly in verse 23 is talking about all, that ha- all who have been cleansed, past, present, and future. The mediator of the new covenant is Jesus, the one that guarantees our eternal inheritance. Sound familiar? We've talked about this internal inheritance. I've talked about this internal inheritance from up here several times. It's been repeated countless times in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is meant to point its readers, its hearers in the first century, its readers, us now, to Jesus. This is why Jesus' blood is better than Abel's. Because only Jesus' blood can secure our forgiveness and our future. There's no comparison to Jesus' blood. Mount Zion represents a posture of grace, peace, joy, and confidence that can come from no other place. Verse 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, a heavenly Jerusalem. This means you have chosen a with God life. You have chosen to live with him. In his presence, he is with us. He is with us. Do you feel him? He's with us. How many times have you heard somebody walk through the doors here and say, I don't know what it is when I walk through these doors, but oh, there's something. I know what it is. How many times have you heard somebody say, I got goosebumps in that song. I know what that is. I got a lump in my throat. My belly started to flutter. I know what that is. God is present. He is here. He is with us. And when we choose a with God life, This is what we can expect. Every aspect of this vision of Zion is intended to encourage believers, us included, to persevere in our faith. So what actually influences our decisions? Our desired outcomes, right? And our desired outcomes will also reveal what we're afraid of. So there's a group of psychotherapists I know, (laughs) who have identified the top 10 fears that actually keep people um, from moving forward, right? Here's what they are. Think about these fears in light of the reality of choosing a with God life. Change. Loneliness. Failure. Rejection uncertainty, something bad happening, getting hurt, being judged, inadequacy, a loss of freedom. 
perseverance doesn't mean try harder to do all the right things. It means hold fast, hang on. God is with us. You have chosen a with God life. We can do this. How does knowing these truths impact the decisions that you make? What about the decisions that we make that we don't really even pay much attention to? Like they're just kind of automatic. Should we pay more attention to them? We have the gift of grace. It's freely ours. Do we want it for ourselves? Do we want it for other people? So I ask you, how do the decisions that we make, big or small, have an impact and reflect the choice of a with God life? Let's pray. Father, we come to you completely humbled, recognizing that this grace and this peace that we desire cannot come from anything that we do on our own. Lord, we thank you for recognizing that we did need a Savior. We do need a Savior. And we thank you for Jesus in doing what we cannot do on our own. Thank you for adopting us into your family, allowing us to understand what it means to be and choose life with you. Lord, I pray that as we go out in our sphere of influence, whether it's work, our neighborhood, our family, in the stores, anywhere that you find us, Lord, I pray that every decision that we make, the unconscious and the conscious, will always point to you and glorify you. We thank you for this gift. In Jesus' name, amen.